What we're seeing now in some ways can be interpreted, I think rightly, as the conflict associated with an imperial breakup, where the imperial center says, no, we're not going to allow the periphery to go their own way without a fight. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Why did Russia invade Ukraine? For insight and an explainer into what is driving the war in Ukraine, I spoke with Russia expert Will Pyle. Pyle is Frederick C. Dirks Professor of International Economics at Middlebury College and an affiliate of the programs in international politics and economics and Russian and East European studies. Professor Will Pyle, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Great to be with you today, David. I want to begin by passing along a question from my 92-year-old mother-in-law. As we were watching the news of the, the war in Ukraine, and she just blurted out a question I think that many of us have, which was, why would they do this? How would you answer her? I think there are two elements to an answer to that question. Um, the first element, more short run, thinking more in just the, what Putin decided to do a month ago, or maybe six months ago, because there was a time in which he was amassing troops on the Ukrainian border, clearly uh, with this invasion in, in mind. Um, Putin made a, uh, a big miscalculation about how easy it would be to invade uh, a very proud country with 40 million people. Uh, it was a miscalculation based upon um, his sense of the Russian military and its effectiveness in suppressing any um, resistance that they would be. The Russian military has turned out to be much less effective than I think he anticipated. It was a miscalculation based upon his misunderstanding of the degree of resistance that he would encounter, um, a misunderstanding of just how proud Ukrainians are about how committed they are to their nation's independence. And it was a miscalculation, uh, I think, based on uh, the West's reaction. I think Putin looked at what happened in Afghanistan, how we extricated ourselves very quickly uh, in, in a way that made us look very weak um, uh, in the past year. Any thoughts that the West's resolve uh, in getting involved in entanglements on the other side of the globe uh, would not be something that he'd have to con contend with. All three of those judgments turned out to be incorrect. So, so I, his I, I calculus wanna... was incorrect on that front in the short run. But I think there's a, there's a deeper reason for why he did this that goes all the way back to when he first came into office, some very long time since for really two decades, Putin has viewed the breakup of the Soviet Union. He's used these words as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Moscow, controlled the lands that are now Ukraine for large portions of the 20th century. And Putin saw that as an ultimate tragedy. And this feeds into kind of, it's not just a sense of Putin, 
that Putin has, but it's a sense that the average Russian has of a sense of Moscow is the center of an empire. And very rarely do empires break up peacefully. And there wasn't much uh, in the way of military conflict when the Soviet empire broke apart in 1991. What we're seeing now in some ways can be interpreted, I think rightly, as the conflict associated with an imperial breakup, where the imperial center says, no, we're not going to allow the periphery, these colonies, if you will, to go their own way without a fight. So you're speaking about this, um, this kind of the spasm of of empire, of a declining empire, but the Soviet Union broke up 30 years ago. Um, this seems to be a rather delayed echo. That's true. 30 years is a long time. A lot's happened in Russia, uh, but memories are long uh, in Russia. Russians still remember World War II. This has become central to kind of Putin's narrative of, of Russia's greatness, the Soviet Union's greatness in the 20th century. Uh, Russia still remembers even uh, the Napoleonic invasion and um, thinks about its relationship with the West uh, as in that context of having been invaded at different times over the past, past centuries. But going back to the 1990s, this was a very painful period in Russian history, both because of the breakup of empire uh, and the lost status that went along with the breakup of empire, but it was also a painful period economically. Uh, Russia experienced a severe recession. A lot of people lost jobs that they thought were lifetime jobs because companies were privatized and went bankrupt. Um, life expectancy in the 1990s, particularly the early 1990s, collapsed more dramatically than in any industrialized country in the post-World War II era. It was an incredibly painful period. And because it was painful, people have remembered it. And one of the ways in which they've remembered it is this sense of we had status. We were a country that was looked up to. And Putin's embodied that feeling very much. He wants to be the, the leader of a country of consequence on the global stage. And part of that desire is now being expressed in this, this ill-conceived, ill-thought-out uh, invasion of Ukraine. You, you've noted that Vladimir Putin is very popular. So explain who is Vladimir Putin and your sense of his place in Russian history at this moment. So Vladimir Putin is a, is a former KGB agent. Uh, he worked uh, at the end of the, um, the old Cold War uh, in Germany as a KGB agent and kind of a backwater in, in Dresden. Uh, and uh, at the end of the Cold War, he was, uh, uh, when the wall came down in Germany, he actually had to defend uh, the uh, the the. Russian consulate there in, in Dresden because there were Germans who wanted to break into it to see, find out all the all the uh, the contents and the, the papers that were there. He defended it at gunpoint. Um, he called up Moscow 
for instructions as to what to do, and there was no response. And that was a, uh, a very critical moment in his worldview, that, um, that Moscow basically uh, had collapsed. The state's capacity uh, to, uh, to maintain its empire had collapsed. And he was very disillusioned with the old Soviet system, with the Communist Party. It uh, felt that it had made very bad decisions under Gorbachev. Uh, in the late 80s and, and early 1990s. So he finds his way back at the end of the, uh, the Cold War to, uh, to St. Petersburg. And according to him, uh, he w really struggled initially economically just to make ends meet, drove a cab uh, to, uh, to, to uh, earn money. Eventually he finds him, his way uh, into the Moscow, into the St. Petersburg mayor's office and rises to be the deputy mayor uh, of the mayor that was very popular, a guy not by the name of Anatoly Sobchak, uh, who, um, who kind of uh, nurtures his career and uh, gives him more and more power. Uh, and then from that position in the St. Petersburg mayor's office, he is plucked um, by uh, people around uh, Yeltsin to come to the Kremlin and serve at the highest levels of the, uh, the federal government. And then by befriending the right people inside the Kremlin, he's there when Yeltsin is very weak at the end of the 1990s and Yeltsin elevates him to a position of, of power and ulti ultimately anoints him to be his, his successor. And he is very lucky uh, in becoming Yeltsin's successor at that particular point in time because the worst of the economic recession in the 1990s has ended and the Russian, the oil price is beginning to rebound globally. And Russia, of course, is a big exporter of oil and Russia's, Russia's fate as, a, uh, as an economic power is very closely tied to the global oil price. So Putin is president at a time in the early 2000s when the global oil price is rising. That brings greater stability to the Russian economy Russians see that and equate stability with Putin, compare that with the disastrous 1990s when everything was falling apart. And so Putin kind of basks in the warm glow associated with the, the rising economy. And, and Putin at that time, initially his instinct was to, uh, to reach out to the West. He was the first on the phone in 2001 to talk to George Bush after the towers came down. Uh, on 9-11. Um, but over time, Putin changes his, his view of the West. Um, and I'd say by the mid-2000s, he's much more suspicious of the West's intentions. Um, and he's uh, very suspicious of kind of the unipolar world that was beginning to uh, um, take shape particularly with the invasion of Iraq. He was very much uh, against the West's charge to uh, invade Iraq on, trumped up, uh, on a trumped up pretext. Uh, and so he was coming to view the world as kind of more uh, the West doing what it wanted to do uh, and kind of justifying it with pretty language about democracy, uh, democratization uh, and 
um, he wanted to push back against that. And he gave a very famous speech in Munich in 2007, where he basically said with Dick Cheney there in the audience, you know, uh, a unipolar world is not good for the world. Uh, you're creating all sorts of problems. And so he saw himself as being kind of the bulwark uh, against that unipolar world and its excesses. And so that became very much part of his foreign par policy orientation uh, in the last 15 years that Russia had to be the bulwark against the excesses of the U.S.-led unipolar world. And a lot of Russians buy into that view that the West wants to hold Russia down. The, the West does not want what's good uh, for Russia. That view resonates very much in the, in the Russian public. Of course, this happens in a context where NATO is, in fact, expanding to the east during this whole time. So Putin's view is not happening in a vacuum. He sees the West extending its influence perhaps provocatively right up to his doorstep. What do you think that uh, the West or the U.S. or NATO moved too quickly or too aggressively for Russians to really tolerate? I've always found that a very difficult question to answer. There are many wise minds, people who study foreign policy much more than I do. George Kennan, John Mishammer uh, has received a lot of attention of late, who make that argument that the West did expand too rapidly. On the other hand, I don't think if the West had allowed NATO to expand, if the West hadn't responded to the calls of those countries, we didn't impose NATO on Poland and the Baltic states. NATO was invited in. If NATO hadn't responded to those calls, I'm convinced Putin would be in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania today. I think the West could have done better. To take a step back from your question, uh, I think the West could have done much better in the 1990s than it did. We treated Poland very well in the late 80s and early 1990s. We welcomed them into the Western fold. We forgave all their external debts and we provided them on top of that with a great deal of initial uh, aid to get them started. We could have done something similar with respect to Russia, but we didn't. A kind of a Marshall Plan for Russia. That is provide aid to the Eltsin government that early on was very friendly to us forgiven the debts that Russia assumed from the Soviet Union to Western governments and banks. Russia assumed all of the liabilities of the Soviet Union in exchange for also getting all of the assets that the, were the Soviet Union's, including military bases on the Black Sea and, and elsewhere. But if we had forgiven debts and provided aid we might be in a very different place now in terms of the Russian publics and Russian officials' uh, perceptions of the West and, and their intentions. NATO expansion 
it's it's a tough question for me mm-hmm. um it's uh, i'm very sensitive to both arguments uh but we have to remember that nato expansion did not involve the west imposing nato on unwilling countries nato was welcomed in into those countries and that's often gets forgotten by the people who argue that we made a big mistake in, in going into those countries with NATO. Um, we've done a lot of setting of the scene here and not yet gotten to Ukraine. So let's talk about the relationship of Ukraine to Russia, its role in the former Soviet Union. Why is Ukraine such a flashpoint uh, for Russia and for Putin? There's a historian at, um, at Yale a wonderful historian of this part of the world named Tim Snyder. And he wrote a wonderful book uh, that I'd recommend to, to your audience called Bloodlands, which is all about the territory between Germany and Russia and how over the centuries it's been fought over, divided up, apportioned, uh, borders going back and forth. Um, and Ukraine's part of those those bloodlands, as as is lar- as are large parts of of Poland, Belarus. This part of the world's been been fought over for a long time, but in Putin's mind, it was part of the Soviet Union. It was part of the the uh, the Soviet Empire. Um, Russia, in some sense, traces its history back a thousand years to a civilization that began in Kyiv uh, before the center of the empire switched to, uh, to Russia. The Russians and Ukrainians culturally are, are very close. Um, Russians believe that Ukrainians speak a version of the Russian language, just not as sophisticated a version. They see themselves as kind of the more sophisticated older siblings in this relationship. And Putin believes that the Soviets, Lenin, carved up the Russian Empire in a way that was ahistorical. That is, the Ukrainian state was created out of the Russian Empire, given to Russians. In some sense, an autonomy within the Soviet context was given to the Ukrainian people, but that was all false. The real territories of what is now present-day Ukraine, in Putin's worldview, uh, were part of the Russian Empire before Lenin decided to break up the Soviet Union into 15 autonomous republics. And then, of course, Crimea was only given given to Ukraine by, uh, by Khrushchev. Uh, as as a gift when Khrushchev was in control. That was the argument that was made. And Crimea was always part in, in Putin's worldview, a part of, of Russia. That's the argument he made in 2014. So there's this, this strong historical tie that, that Putin feels to, to Ukraine. Um, I, I want to move into uh, the piece you wrote this week for the Washington Post, looking at Russian attitudes uh, about patriotism. And you write that Russians feel a stronger obligation to support their country, right or wrong, 
than people in virtually any other country, close quote. Um, what does this say? Why is this the case that, you know, as we watch this horrific war unfold uh, before our eyes on the news, you know, Russia looms as this kind of faceless actor. You have Putin, uh, but you have this vast country that we know nothing about the opinions of people inside. But you've assessed this and tracked this over the years. What do you know about what Russians believe? Let me just provide a little background for that finding from my research with uh, my colleague at Indiana University, Michael Alexeyev. Um, we had seen a lot of speculation in the Russian press, argumentation based upon polls that only Russians had responded to. And so a number of people, when the buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border uh, began, began to comment on whether or not the Russian Republic would support an invasion. And there was a poll that was done by an independent, very well-respected pollster inside Russia, the Levada Center, where they asked Russians a question. Which type of country would you rather be in? a country with a very high standard of living or a country that was a great power feared and respected. So they made for Russians a very clear trade-off between kind of economic well-being and this kind of great power status. And in the after, they've asked that question over the course of 20 years, including up to this past fall. And the high watermark for the great power response, a country that's feared and respected, was right in the aftermath of the initial Ukrainian invasion. That's when Russians were really patriotic, rally around the flag effect. But we, even today, when you say the initial invasion, you're speaking of 2022? Uh, that was the high watermark. About a half of respondents said, we'd rather be in a great power, feared and respected, than in a country with a high living standard. I found that to be a remarkable response, that Russians would kind of, a lot of Russians would forego economic well-being for the sense that they live in a powerful country. And I'd attribute that to a number of Russians, particularly the older generations, feeling a sense of, of status associated with life in the old Soviet Union when they were one of the two world's uh, powers. Let me, let me, we just have a short time and I, um, I'm curious then a couple things. One is um, what you feel the effect of sanctions are in the environment you describe. Uh, one might think that uh, their tolerance for a high degree of suffering is quite high, so that they're willing to endure the hardships, the economic hardships that are now falling upon them. Is that your sense? So I think our, our sense from the polling numbers is that Russians' willingness to sacrifice um, material well-being for 
national foreign policy goals is greater, much greater than citizens in other countries. Is their willingness to tolerate economic hardship, body bags returning from Ukraine, which they'll find out about despite Putin's best attempts to limit the flow of information that uh, that Russians are getting. Is their willingness to tolerate body bags and, and economic costs imposed by the sanctions? These sanctions are going to be really brutal. Uh, what the West is putting together, particularly if, if, you, if uh, the EU and China get on board with sanctioning the Russian oil and gas, that will really, really turn the screws on the Russian economy. Um, that willingness of the Russian public to tolerate sacrifice to tolerate and sacrifice, it's not unlimited. We know that the Russian public opinion in Af with respect to Afghanistan, this is the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, where the body bags started to pile up. And even though information, the information environment was uh, not a free one during the Soviet era, um, body bags started to pile up, 15,000 deaths in Afghanistan, and the Russian public began to turn. The Chechen war, under Yeltsin, a freer media environment, the Russians turned against the Chechen war in 1994, 95, 96. Russians will turn. Um, well, it's just that they won't turn as quickly as people uh, might expect them to. Because I think there's been a lot of wishful thinking based upon what we see on our TV screens of young people coming out into the streets in the big cities, very well educated, very courageous, and but there, those numbers are in the thousands. There are an awful lot of people that are just plain scared, rightfully scared, because Russia has criminalized public dissent right now. Uh, but there are a lot of people that don't believe the news that uh, that they hear that there is a war or that Russians are dropping bombs on hospitals uh, or they just believe that uh, the uh, the aggression, Russia's aggression is justified because of Western expansion. That's a message that really is, resonates with, with Russians, given the history. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Professor Will Pyle, I want to thank you for joining us and, and enlightening us a bit about uh, how we got to the point we are today in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Glad to be with you, David. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.